I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn to what I believe is the most important book in the entire Bible, to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 11. And tonight I want to speak to you on verse 36. The title of this message is, All Glory to God. Romans chapter 11, I want to begin reading in verse 33. And before I begin reading this passage, I want to express my gratitude to my friend Josh Bice for the way God has used him to bring to pass what we now are all experiencing at the G3 conference. It's been a great honor for me, a very humbling honor, to have preached from the very beginning at each one of these G3 conferences. And I remember when I first received the email from Josh asking me to come speak over a year before the first G3 conference began and to see it grow into what it has now become. I believe in what God is doing here at G3, and I think it has an enormous future ahead of it. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 33, I want you to know that our focus will be upon verse 36. But I want to begin reading in verse 33, and maybe just one brief comment before I do. This is a doxology. This is a hymn of praise that is offered to God, which could not be any more appropriate for a conference on worship. These verses drip with worship. And it is a worship that is produced by a towering vision of God. Beginning in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became His counselor? Or who is first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Now, here's our text. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory forever. Amen. This past summer, I led a tour group through Switzerland as we studied the Swiss Reformation. We started in Zurich and traveled across Switzerland to Geneva. In the entire way, I lectured on the life and the ministry of John Calvin. We ended up at saint Paris Cathedral in Geneva, where Calvin preached, and across the way at the auditorium, in the auditorium where he lectured, and we went to the Reformation Wall. And after the tour, I took those who wanted to go with me. We went to Mont Blanc. Mont Blanc is the tallest mountain in the Swiss Alps. Mont Blanc is 15,777 feet tall. That is almost three miles tall. Uh, To go to the top of Mont Blanc, you have to take first a a cable car just virtually 
straight up. It took an enormous amount of time before they could even lay the cable to take the cable car straight up. But even at that, you're barely halfway up. And you get out and into the second cable car and you ascend yet higher and higher and higher until you reach the very top and it's absolutely breathtaking. Mont Blanc stands at the, a three-way intersection of France, Germany, and Italy. There are only 60 days a year in which there is, that is cloudless, where you can see the vast terrain without interference of clouds. And the day that we were there was one of those days. And there from the top of Mont Blanc, you feel that you are standing on top of the world. And in a sense, you are. And in every direction that you look, the vista is it's just jaw-dropping. It's breathtaking as, as you look down and you see the sheer majesty and the glory and the, the magnitude of the mountain range. That is exactly where we're standing in verse 36. We're standing on top of the world. We are standing and given a, a vision of the theological landscape of the gospel of Jesus Christ that in many ways surpasses every other vantage that we have. As Paul writes the book of Romans, we begin way down in the valley, down at the base of the mountain. And in Romans 1, 2, and 3, we begin with condemnation. In Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And then we proceed up the mountain and we come to the next, the next stage, which is justification. In, Revel in Romans 3, 4, and 5, in Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But we're not even halfway up this transcendent, towering mountain of truth. We yet rise higher to sanctification in Romans 6, 7, and 8. And we read how all who have been justified are sanctified. And we have died to sin. We're alive to God. We're no longer enslaved to sin. But now we are slaves of righteousness and of the Lord Jesus Christ but we climb yet higher to glorification. And we read that those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he, he glorified. And we see that there is now, therefore, no con uh, there is no separation from the love of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we still have not yet reached the top of this mountain of truth. And in Romans 9 through 11, we see the, the, the snow peak on top of the mountain. It is the doctrine of election. So it does not depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs, but upon God who has mercy. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And how the potter can take from one lump of clay and make vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and 
others' vessel of mercy prepared for eternal life. And as we come to the end of Romans 11, it is as though the cable car has taken us to the very highest point. And as Paul steps out of that cable car, if you will, and he looks back over the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, he looks over the landscape from which he has traveled with us and and laid out such sound theology. And all Paul can say is, as he looks at the broad expanse of the gospel of Jesus Christ, oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His ways and unfathomable His judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? And Paul, with verse 36, he is at the very pinnacle, the very highest point of the summit And he says, for from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It is this one verse to which I want to draw our attention tonight. And I want to break this verse into two halves. I want you to note first a God-centered theology. That is the first half of verse 36. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. That is a God-centered theology. And then the second half of the verse will be our second heading, a God-centered doxology. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And these two halves are inseparably bound together, and these two halves are in exactly the right order. There is no true doxology until you know the true theology. It is our theology that ignites our doxology. And so I want us to to open the lens, and I want us to look carefully into this one verse so that we will have the worship of God that rightly belongs to Him. I want you to note first a God-centered theology. This verse begins with an extraordinary statement that is all-inclusive in its scope. Look at it again in your Bible, verse 36, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. This is the most all-inclusive statement in the entire Bible. This is the most all-inclusive statement in the entire world and in the entire universe. There is nothing that lies outside of this statement. All things is all things. This statement is as high and as deep and broad and long as the entire universe and everything that occurs within the universe. Here in this, in these three prepositional phrases, from him, through him, to him, are all things, is Romans 1 through 11 in summary. Here is the entire Bible in miniature. Here is a complete systematic theology in itself. 
Here is a comprehensive Christian world view, the lens that we need through which to see all of reality and see all of the world around us. Here is the Reformation in a nutshell. For from him says that God is the source of all things. Through him says that God is the means of all things. And to him, God is the goal of all things. To put it another way, from him means he is the architect of all things. Through him, he is the administrator of all things. And to him, he is the aim of all things. Or to put it another way, from him, that is his sovereign will. Through him is his sovereign activity. To him is his sovereign glory. To him is his sovereign will from all eternity past. Through him is his sovereign activity within time. And to him is his sovereign glory throughout all of the ages to come. This is not unique to the teaching of Scripture. This same truth is found in multiple passages in the New Testament. Listen to 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. There is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. 1 Corinthians eleven twelve. All things originate from God. Ephesians 4, verse 6, there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Colossians 1, 16, for by him, referring to Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Hebrews 2, verse 10. For it was fitting for him, referring to Christ, for whom are all things, through whom are all things. It's been well said that the Apostle Paul's theology is most succinctly summarized in prepositional phrases. From him, for him, by him, through him, over all things, in all things. That's exactly what Romans 11, verse 36 is saying. Now, I want you to think with me tonight, because this will affect the authenticity of your worship. Worship is not generated by mood music. Worship is generated by an understanding of who God is and what God does. And our worship will rise no higher than our theology will rise high. And so we must understand what these three prepositional phrases encompass from Him, through Him, to Him. I want you to think of this under three headings. 
Number one, creation. Number two, history and providence. And number three, salvation. Let's consider this first under creation, that all things are from Him. Of course all things are from Him. He is the creator of all that there is. He, Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was God who said, let there be light, and there was light. John 1 and verse 3 says, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. He literally had galaxies dripping out of his fingertips as he spoke everything into existence out of nothing. Hebrews 1 verse 2 said that, says that concerning God's Son, through whom He made the world. Concerning creation, it all has come from Him. James Montgomery Boyce writes, if anything exists, if anything exists, then God, who is the uncaused first cause, must exist and be the creator of all. That is to say, God is the uncreated creator, that God is the first cause that has set everything into motion. But not only is all creation from Him, all creation is through Him, meaning it is God and God alone who holds the world in the palm of His hand that God moment by moment sustains and upholds the world that He has spoken into being. God is the mighty Atlas who has all creation on His shoulder. Colossians 1 verse 17, in Him all things hold together. Hebrews 1 verse 3, He upholds all things by the word of His power. God was not upholding all of creation this moment. The entire globe would disintegrate. We would disintegrate. The sun and the planets would disintegrate, and everything would just dissipate. It is God moment by moment. That which is from Him is held together through Him, and then it is to Him. It has been created all for His his own glory and for his own pleasure. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. John Calvin said the whole world is but a theater to showcase the greatness and the grandeur and the glory of God. It is all to put on display the greatness of our God. Let me say that this is why we so strongly oppose the devil's lie of evolution. Evolution is a frontal assault on the glory of God. Evolution displaces God as the source of all things and replaces it with a big bang theory or a steady state theory or a pulsating universe theory or some random chance. Evolution says all things are without divine 
purpose and without divine design. And when you replace God as the source of all things, you replace God as the purpose of all things. So it is true in creation. It is also true second in history and in providence. Not only has God created the entire world in which we live as a grand stage for human history, but God has written the script of all that will take place in human history, and God is the director who is orchestrating all of the events of human history and bringing all of history to His God-appointed end. All of this is from God. God is the grand architect. Before time began, before the foundation of the world, God is the grand architect of His master plan that includes not only the macro, but the micro. Not only the, the planets and the stars and the galaxy, but every hair of your head is numbered and not a sparrow falls apart from the Lord. This master plan is called by theologians His eternal decree. It is God's one plan from before the world was created for everything that comes to pass. There is no plan B. There is no plan C. Acts 2.23 refers to it as the predetermined plan. Ephesians 1.11 refers to it as the counsel of His will. Ephesians 3.11, the eternal purpose. Romans 9.11, God's purpose. Hebrews 6.17, the unchangeableness of His purpose. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11 is a startling passage of Scripture of this eternal decree of God from before the foundation of the world. And in Ephesians 1.11, we read that we have been predestined according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. Come with me, if you will, back to eternity past into the secret council hall of God before the angels were created, before heaven itself was created, before anything was created, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit deliberated among themselves with one mind and with one will. And first came their counsel, which was their divine deliberation. As they considered every conceivable possibility, they could have created 10,000 worlds, they could have created one world, they could have created the sky to be green and the grass to be blue, and out of their counsel came their will, their one determinative will by which they have chosen everything that will come to pass. It would include even the, the fall of Lucifer, Lucifer to become Satan, it would include the entrance of evil into the world, it would include the, the legions of demons. All of this a part of God's one master 
plan. Out of his counsel came his will, and out of his will came his purpose. God was eternally resolved that he would carry out his purpose and that there would be no altercation of the counsel of his will. Man proposes his ways, but God determines his steps. Then, according to Ephesians 1.11, out of his counsel comes his will, and out of his will comes his purpose, and out of his purpose comes his predestination. The word predestination, pro-orizo in the Greek, you can hear the word horizon. And it means that out on the horizon is the destination, and that the destination has been determined before the journey even begins. And while God in eternity past planned His master plan, He then sealed it and marked out the final destination of all that He would create. All of this is from God. History is His story. And then it says, and through Him... All of history and providence is going according to His eternal plan and purpose. All that He planned in eternity past, He is bringing to pass within time. He is the immutable executor of His own sovereign will. Listen to Isaiah 14, 26. God says, this is the plan devised against the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out against all the nations. Isaiah says, for the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for his outstretched hand, who can turn it back? Those are two rhetorical questions, the answer of which is, no one can turn back the hand of God from fulfilling His eternal purpose and plan, which was designed by His inscrutable wisdom. Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Why would He say that? Because what He is about to tell us, we are so easily apt to forget. Verse 9, remember the former things long past. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Now, what distinguishes God as God? He tells us in verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning. In other words, God stands at the beginning of all of creation, at the beginning of time, and He declares the end all the way to the end. And it is a figure of speech known as uh, inclusio that encompasses the whole of everything in between. It's like saying from the East Coast to the, to the West Coast, God stands at the beginning and He declares the end and everything in between. Saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass, 
I have planned it, surely I will do it. This is our God in heaven. Isaiah 48, verse 3, I have declared the former things long ago, and they went forth from my mouth, and I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted, and they came to pass. This is God. And anything less than this understanding of God is a God of your own making, is a God of your vain imagination, not the God of the Bible. Proverbs 16, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, which is like tossing of dice, but it's every turning up is from the Lord. God is micromanaging the planet, and he is micromanaging even the smallest affairs of providence. As R.C. Sproul has said, there are no maverick molecules in the universe. Proverbs 19, verse 21, many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Man will change his plans, but God will never change his plans. Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. I remember years ago going down the Nile River on a, on a ship and looking to the, to the side and seeing the different farmers in their fields along the Nile River and how they would open up a, a channel for water from the Nile River to flow into their field to water their crops. And there was a series of channels of like mazes where the farmer could direct the flow of the water according to his own purpose and will. And he would put down a, a board at a particular place and force the water to turn this way. And he would put down another board and force it to flow that way. Then he would lift a board and allow it to continue to go its own way. What Proverbs is saying is that the heart of the king, the mightiest man on planet earth, it is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If the mightiest king on earth who but speaks a word and men go and do it, that God holds his heart in the palm of his hand and God channels the heart of the king to fulfill God's own sovereign purposes. As he raises up one king, as he lowers another king, as he defines the boundaries of, of nations, God is ruling over all as the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. Proverbs 21, verse 31, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. And we must hear from Psalm 33, verse 10, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. To say it again, there is no plan B. There is no plan C. God has only plan A from before time began 
and God is the executor of his own plan, and God is bringing all things together according to his sovereign will. He even says to Judas, what you do, do quickly. Romans 8, 28, and we know. And when Paul says, and we know, it's his way of saying, we all know this. It is his way of saying, this is Christianity 101. It is Paul's way of saying, this is entry-level truth into the kingdom of heaven. Paul is saying, this is kindergarten stuff. If you're saved and you're breathing, you know this. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. This does not say all things are good. Evil is not good. Sin is not good. But what this is saying is that God takes both the good and the evil and He weaves it all together into an extraordinary tapestry of providence to bring about the greatest good. And what is that greatest good in your life that God every moment of every day is actively working in your life to bring about? The next verse, Romans 8, 29, tells us, it is that we would be conformed into the image of God's Son. There is no greater good for your life or for my life. And God, who oversees the affairs of providence in our life, He is using both days of prosperity as well as days of adversity, days of triumph and days of, of trials, mountaintop days and dark valley days, and God, the sovereign Lord over the affairs of our lives, He is causing it all to work together for our good. And when you look at an oriental rug, there are two sides to the oriental rug. If you pull it back and look at the bottom side, you do not perceive a, a master design. You do not see a pattern. Everything appears to be disjointed. There are muted colors in the threads. There are broken threads and dangling frays. But when you turn it back down and you see it from the top, it is a stunningly beautiful masterpiece in which every thread is woven together perfectly. The bright, brilliant colors are vividly seen, and it all comes together. As you and I live our lives, all we see is the backside of the tapestry. We, we, we don't see the master plan that God has for our lives. If we could only see as God sees, we would see the top side of the oriental rug and see that God with perfect precision and intentionality is the Lord of the affairs of our lives. And He is causing everything to work together for good. He's not a mere passive spectator just observing what is taking place here. But He 
has his hand on the pulse of your life and is working it all together to make you more like Jesus Christ. And what he is doing in the micro with your individual life, not a sparrow falls apart from the Lord, your every hair is numbered. He also does in the big picture, in the scheme of things with nations, in the movement of history. No, even providence in history is from him and through him and to him. It is all for God's glory. Isaiah 48, verse 11, from, for my own sake, For my own sake, he repeats it twice, I will act, and my glory I will not give to another. All that God is doing in your life is for his glory and for your good. Any denial of the doctrine of providence is a direct assault on the glory of God. What robs God of his glory? Any credence to the pagan myths of good luck, bad luck, blind fate, random chance, accidental occurrences, astrology, superstitions, etc., etc. It is all a blatant denial of the sovereignty of God and it robs God of His glory, and we will never worship Him unless we understand He holds us in our hands, and He holds the whole world in His hands, and God is the Lord over history and over your life. And God is bringing it all to a climactic end. But not only in creation, and not only in providence, But God is doing the same in salvation. Nowhere is this verse more true than in matters of His saving grace. In fact, that is the primary context and meaning of this whole section. And in salvation, all things are from God and through God and to God. All things are from God pointing back to eternity past, before the foundation of the world, before time began, God chose His elect. He passed over others and set His heart of distinguishing love upon those whom He would choose. In Ephesians 1 verse 11, it says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. No, the doctrine of sovereign election is from Him. Also, once He chose His elect, He gave His elect to His Son to be his chosen bride. John 6, 37 says, all that the Father gives me. Verse 39, all he has given me. John 10, 29, 
The Father has given them to me. John 17, 2, all whom you have given me. Verse 9, those whom you have given me. In eternity past, the Father chose his elect and gave them to the Son. And then the Father designed the plan of salvation and the gospel itself. Romans 1 verse 1 tells us it is the gospel of God, meaning it is a a gospel that has not arisen from this world. It has never been drafted by a denomination. It has never been crafted by a church. It's not the result of any seminary. No, this gospel of God is an out-of-this-world gospel. It was designed in the infinite genius of Almighty God from eternity past, and only God could have designed the, the simplicity yet the profundity of the gospel message. If all of us here tonight divided up into small groups and we met for the next 10,000 years, not a one of our groups would have come up with the plan of salvation. Who among us would have come up with the virgin birth? Who among us would have come up with the fact that Jesus would be truly God and truly man? That would have never dawned on us. Who but God could have designed that He would be born under the law, that He would obey the law on our behalf and fulfill all righteousness and give His righteousness to us in justification? No, all of this came spiraling out of the brilliant, genius mind of God from all eternity past. And salvation is through Him, meaning that God is the one who sent the Holy Spirit to convict of sin. God is the one by His Spirit who calls His elect into relationship with Christ. It is God the one who causes the spiritually dead soul to be regenerated. John 3 verse 8, the wind blows wherever it wishes. You hear the sound of it and do not know where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is all a work of God's sovereign grace, independent of of man. And it is all to Him. It will lead to Him in heaven one day, where we will be glorified and stand dressed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. It is all to the praise of the glory of His grace. Ephesians 1, 6. What robs God of His glory? What withholds glory in the fullest extent being given to God is any belief in the free will of man, in the foreknowledge of God that is merely foresight, in a universal atonement of Christ for those already in hell, for a synergistic regeneration in which man contributes to his own new birth, any baptismal regeneration, any falling from grace, any universal salvation, annihilationism, Catholicism, all of the false religions of the world. It is all an attack on the glory of God and only the purity 
that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that it is a salvation of God from eternity past throughout time unto eternity future. This is a God-centered theology. This is a biblical theology. And what does it produce? Well, the second half of verse 36, in Romans 11, in verse 36, it should inevitably lead to a God-centered doxology. (laughs) This can be the only right response to a God-centered theology. He says at the end of verse 36, on the basis of the first half of verse 36, the result of believing that from Him and through Him and to Him are all things in creation and in providence and in salvation. The result is to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. If you think that it's half God and half man, then you will give half praise to God and you will keep half of the glory for yourself. But God will not share His glory with another. And it is only this theology that puts you on top of the Mount Everest of sound doctrine will give you the vantage point for your heart to be to be enthralled with God, to rise up and to say, to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is far away from having an intellectual coldness. Paul is anything but one of the frozen chosen. Paul has a red-hot, blazing, passionate love for God because he believes in the depth of his soul that all things are from God and through God and to God. Very quickly, just four questions to ask you about the end of, of verse 36. Number one, who is to be glorified? To God be the glory. It is soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Psalm 29, 1 and 2, ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. And in His temple, everything says glory. Psalm 96, verse 7, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of His name. Understand this, the higher your theology, there should be the higher of your worship. And if you have a low theology, you're going to have a low worship that's going to have to be propped up by superficial synthetic props. It is the, the, the heart and the mind that stands on that mountain peak and sees the vast landscape of theology, that all things are from Him and through Him and to Him. Your heart is ready to leap out of your chest and give glory to God for who He is and what He is doing. Second, what is the glory to God? Theologians make a distinction between the intrinsic glory of God 
and ascribe glory. The intrinsic glory of God is all that God is. It is the sum and the substance of all that God is. And ascribe glory is the glory that we give to God once we see His intrinsic glory. The more we see of His intrinsic glory, the more we will ascribe glory to God. We cannot give intrinsic glory to God. God is who He is. He is the God who was and who is and who shall be forever. But ascribe glory is what we give to God on the basis of our firm understanding and belief that all things are from Him and through Him and to Him. The third question, when should we give God glory? The next to the last word, forever. To Him be the glory forever. The glory that we are to give to God will be throughout time and into eternity future without end. Literally, the word forever means into the ages, into all the ages to come. Eternity will not be long enough for us to give glory to our God. This is repeated again and again and again throughout Scripture. But as John Newton wrote, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And then finally, how should we give glory? The last word of verse 36, amen, which in the Greek means, in essence, truly, truly, this is true. Yes, this is so. Surely this is true. Yes, yes, a thousand times, yes. And as Paul comes to the end of Romans chapter 11, after covering covering the full expanse of the doctrine of salvation from condemnation to justification to sanctification to glorification to election and even reprobation, Paul can only conclude this, this, this tour de force through theology by giving his resounding amen. And I want to know know tonight, can you say amen to what we have said? Can you say amen that we once were condemned and under the wrath of God? Can you say amen that by faith in Christ alone we have been justified? Can you say amen that the doctrine of sanctification means that I am being conformed into the image of God's Son? And can you say amen that my soul is heaven-bound? I'm as certain for heaven as if I've already been there 10,000 years. And can you say your amen that God has taken from the same lump of clay and has set you apart unto Himself, having sovereignly, royally elected you from before the foundation of the world? Worship begins when God is big and man is small. Worship begins when God is everything and man is nothing. Worship begins when God is exalted and man is eclipsed. Worship begins when God is seen to be infinite and man is but finite. 
I will give Martin Lloyd-Jones the last word. As he came to his to the end of his sermon many years ago on this very text, the doctor concluded with this soul-searching crescendo. What does this amen mean? It means that you confess that you are nothing, that you confess that you are a vile, hell-deserving sinner, that you acknowledge gladly that you are what you are solely by the grace of God, and that you have ceased to defend yourself if you have ceased to try to if you have ceased to try to excuse yourself you have ceased to try to justify yourself in any way whatsoever i go further lord jones says that you have ceased to try to pit your mind against god's mind are you still arguing against the doctrine of election if you are you have not said your amen to this the purpose of god according to election are you still standing up and putting your mind and your opinions and your will against God, if so, you are not saying your amen to this great doxology. The man who says his amen is the man who says, I am nothing, God is all, I know nothing, I can do nothing, I have nothing, I am simply a vile sinner saved by His grace, I owe all thanks to the grace and the glory and the mercy of God, and I give Him all the glory. I am nothing. I say it is all of God. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. All glory to our God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are awestruck, we are stunned, we are amazed, we are bewildered at the towering truth that has been penned in this verse by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As Paul has pulled back the veil and given us the big picture of what it's all about, and we see that you are the Lord of history, you are the Lord of creation, and you are the Lord of salvation. And we fall down within our hearts before your throne of grace. And we say with the Apostle Paul, to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen.